Good morning. It is a joy and a privilege to be here this morning. Uh, glad, to, glad to worship with you and open the Word of God together with you. If you will, please turn to Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. As you're turning there, I'm realizing it's a spring break week. We lost an hour of sleep. It was a rainy morning. If you are here, it is a miracle. Uh, if you're here with kids, it's an even more incredible miracle. <laughs> Glad you're here. We believe in a sovereign Lord who has you here for a purpose from before the foundation of the world. He has destined that you will be here to hear his word. And he meets us here and he works through his word when we need it, where we need it. Luke 9, starting in verse 28 through 36, this is the word of God. Now about eight days after saying these things, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. This is talking about Jesus, of course. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory in the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son. My chosen one, listen to him. And the, when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one these, in those days anything of what they had seen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Beloved, let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you will, by your Holy Spirit, work through your word, break through the hardness of our heart, break through the distractions of our mind. We are tired we have many uh, things on our minds, anxieties, fears, delights, all kinds of things that distract us. Lord, we pray that our focus this morning would be on Jesus and his glory. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. There are a lot of different ways that you can summarize the, the big story of the Bible, that is, tell the, the, the big major points of the Bible from beginning to end. And of course, one of the most simple ways that we in the, the Presbyterian tradition often do is we can talk about Old Covenant and New Covenant. Uh, some people will talk about the story of the Bible in terms of creation, fall, redemption, consummation, right? I've even heard the Bible uh, sort of told through the story of a garden, right? God, God creates us and he places us in the Garden of Eden. And then in the fall, uh, there's the, the, the gardens of Babylon. And then Jesus in redemption, the, the garden of Gethsemane. And finally, uh, the, the garden of heaven, the new heavens, the new earth. But there's another way that we can tell the big story of the Bible, that is the, the big points, uh, the, the, the big major epics of the Bible, and that is by following the light in the cloud, that is following the glory of God. Now, we talk about glory a lot. What does that mean? Glory is a big concept in the Bible. It's kind of hard to describe, but when we talk about God's glory, we mean his importance, his, his greatness, his weightiness. 
But there's another way that the Bible describes God's glory, and it's not just his internal greatness, but it's that, that visible splendor, especially in the Old Testament, uh, is what's referred to oftentimes as the Shekinah glory of God. That is, God often will manifest himself in the Bible uh, with the appearance of a great cloud or a heavy smoke and a great light. And the idea there is that all of God's internal greatness can't be contained. All of who he is burst out in this radiant splendor. And so to really understand what's happening here in this, this famous passage we call the Transfiguration, we have to understand the Old Testament. We have to go back and follow the cloud and the light. All right, so let's follow that glory together, tracing it through the Old Testament. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm gonna trust that you kind of know some of these stories, but let's just walk through it together real briefly. We first see the visible glory of God in the book of Exodus. You recall as the Israelites were leaving, uh, fleeing Egypt, the great pillar of cloud that led the Israelites by day and the pillar of fire that led them by night. And then we get a, later in the book of Exodus, Moses catches a glimpse of the glory of God on Mount Sinai. And there we see God's glory as this, this great shining light that was so bright that it reflected off the rock onto Moses' face. And then even 40 days later, when Moses had come down from the mountain, that, that, that radiance of God's glory that shone off the rock was, was shining, shining off of his face so bright that it was blinding people. We see Moses, uh, when, when Moses sought the Lord, uh, he would go into the tent of meeting and it says that a cloud of smoke would descend, to, descend upon it. Afterwards, God instructed Moses to create the tabernacle and the tabernacle was this, this big elaborate tent. It was a portable sanctuary where God would be with his people. And scripture says that his presence uh, manifest as this great cloud of smoke descended and settled on that tabernacle in the inner room of the tent, the Holy of Holies, above the Ark of the Covenant. Hundreds of years later, under King Solomon, the portable temple was replaced with a permanent, uh, the portable tabernacle was replaced with a permanent temple. And when the temple was completed, and there was prayers of dedication. Second Chronicles tells us that the glory of the Lord, that is that, 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 that smoke and that light, filled the temple. Now that's around 950 BC. And there, scripture tells us the glory of the Lord stayed. Nobody was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies because there that manifest presence, that Shekinah glory of God was. Now 400 years after the building of the temple, Ezekiel tells us that the elders of Israel were worshiping their own idols in the temple. They, they had desecrated the walls with pictures of these idols. And in Ezekiel 10 and 11, the prophet sees a vision of the cloud of God's glory leaving that inner room, the Holy of Holies. And it, it goes out of the inner room uh, into the, the court and then out the front door and then upwards, departing from Israel. And it's gone. As the prophet Samuel would prophesy, the great curse had occurred. Ichabod, the glory of God had departed. That cloud and that light that had been with Israel since the Exodus was gone and it never returned. Until now, until here, up on this unnamed mountain in the wilderness of northern Israel where Jesus and three of his disciples had gone to pray for the first time in over 600 years, the cloud and the light, the glory of God has returned to Israel. Christ is the glory of God. This is what we see here. It's the, it's the return of that light. Look in verse 29. 
As he was praying, Jesus, the appearance of his face was altered. His clothing became dazzlingly white. What's happening there? He's being transfigured, as the older translation says. The, the, the Greek is metamorphosis. There is a change that happens in the appearance of Jesus. Uh, his, his face changes. The, the, he becomes dazzlingly white. It's, it's radiance, right? The, if we pick that apart, the idea is that he was blindingly white like, like lightning when it strikes. Matthew in his gospel says that Jesus' face shone like the sun, right? The idea there is manifest, radiating, imminent light, the same light of God in the Old Testament. And so what's being witnessed here was the unveiling of the divine nature of Christ. His divine nature, which was his eternally as the second person of the Trinity, is breaking through the veil of his humanity, all that the disciples had suspected and believed, all the things that those miracles that Jesus had been doing, uh, and all, the, all the miracles were pointing to is now being confirmed beyond a doubt that this man is God. Jesus is God. As the Nicene Creed puts it, he is God of God, light of lights, very God of very God. That means he's not kind of sort of God, all right, kids, he's not, he's not something like God. He's not similar to God, but he is fully God in every single way. He is God. His presence there with his disciples was the very presence of God himself once more dwelling with his people. The glory of the Lord once more able to be seen. The glory that had departed nearly 600 years before this was back. God with his people. What's this all about? Why is it happening? If we, I know we're just kind of picking the story up. If we put it in context of the narrative of Luke, every story in the last two chapters, going back to Luke chapter seven, is answering one question, that is, who is Jesus? And so Jesus does the, several miracles, calming the storm, right? Uh, and all of this to answer that question, who is he? And all these miracles are showing that he is Lord over all of life and death. And then just a little bit before this passage in the same chapter in Luke 9, Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Again, asking that question, who is Jesus? And Peter confesses there, you are the Christ of God. And now, not just nature pointing to who he is, not just Peter pointing to who he is, but now God the Father himself is answering the question, who is this man? And he answers it by pulling back the veil of Christ's humanity, by showing us a glimpse of the true glory of Jesus. Who is Christ? Who is Jesus? He is God. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the one who holds all things together by the power of his word, the one who calms the storm, the one who feeds the masses, the one who is making the nations his footstool, the one to whom one day every knee will bow and tongue confess. And I want you to notice here, the glory of God that marks his divine presence, it doesn't settle upon Jesus, it radiates from him. It's not that the light shone on him like a spotlight. It's not this image that this light comes down from heaven and says, hey, here's Jesus. No, he is the light. The light is coming from him. He became light. That is the glory of God doesn't come down on him, but Jesus himself is the glory of God. He is the fullness of God's presence once again dwelling with his people. And to confirm this even more, to leave no doubt, the Father's glory is manifest in another way. It's not just that the light comes back, but the cloud comes back. Look at verse 34. 
As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. That cloud that had guided Israel, that had settled in the temple, that left the temple, it's back. It's now come down upon Jesus and the disciples, and a voice comes out of it. What does the voice say? Verse 35, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. This Christ is the glory of God because he is the son of God. What does that mean? He is the only begotten son of the father. That is, he is of the same essence as the father. He is the same substance of the father. Again, he is not someone who is like God, but he is God. He is the chosen one. That is, he is the one that all the Old Testament was pointing to, the fulfillment of all the prophecies, the great savior of the world that was promised all the way back in the beginning, even in the Garden of Eden. He is the one that it's all pointing to. Jesus is the glory of God. That's what we're seeing here. And we also see that he is the one that all the law and the prophets point to. This is one of the reasons why we see Moses and Elijah, right? It says in verse 30, behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. It's one reason why they're there, right? There's a theological reason. These guys are, are representing something bigger than themselves. They're representing in these two, these two men the whole Old Testament. Moses is the lawgiver. He wrote the five books of the Bible, we believe, which mainly deal with the law of God. Elijah is the great prophet. He's representing all the prophetic writings of the Old Testament. So together, they're showing that everything in the scripture is pointing to Jesus. All the Old Testament is about him. It's pointing to him. He's the fulfillment of all of it. You see, that's what this is all about. This whole narrative is to expose us to the overwhelming, unsurpassed glory of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, full of divine glory, who is the fulfillment of all the scripture. But there's something more. There's a reason I believe that God wants us to see a glimpse of this divine glory of Christ. There's a reason that there are disciples there to see this. There's a reason that we're being told about it. There's a reason that brings hope and endurance when we are struggling to follow God in this life. Because you see, not only is this narrative a way of looking back at all the Old Testament, but it's also an anticipation of what's to come. And may I say, brothers and sisters, what this picture of Jesus gives us is fuel to keep us going when obedience to Christ gets difficult. And it gets difficult sometimes, doesn't it? Why are Moses and Elijah here? Yes, as I just said, there's a theological reason. Absolutely, no doubt, let's not miss that. They represent the law and the prophets, the Old Testament bearing witness to the supremacy and glory of Christ. But I ask you, is that it? I mean, that's great. That's really cool. That's important. But is there something more? Because I believe that Moses and Elijah, yes, they represent something. But in seeing what they represent, we shouldn't forget seeing them as people, as humans, as servants of the living God. Because when we see them, we see the kindness of God and I believe are encouraged ourselves to press forward in faithfulness. Moses and Elijah, they're not fairy tales, they're not tall tales, they're not fables. Moses and Elijah were real people in real history. Real people like you and me. 
People who lived and died seeking to serve the Lord faithfully. People who followed God's call in their life to do some really incredibly difficult things. Think about Moses. Moses was called to lead God's people out of Egypt into the promised land, lead them through 40 years of discipline in the wilderness. Or think about Elijah. Elijah called the nation of Israel to to repentance, to forsake their idolatry, to return to uh, worshiping the true God. He longed in his life to see national revival and he stood against the wicked King Ahab and his evil, idolatrous wife, Jezebel. And these two men being here tell us something about how God uses us and how we are to follow him. And it points us to our hope that sustains us through this life. Because beloved, sometimes God will use us and call us to do incredibly difficult things. Sometimes the things that he calls us to will absolutely consume us. The things that God calls us to oftentimes will bring us to the very end of ourselves. Sometimes God will call us to work amongst people, to minister to people, to help people, and maybe family, maybe people in the community, maybe others in the church, maybe your own children, maybe neighbors, maybe coworkers. But God calls you to minister to them, to serve them, to love them, and they're not grateful. And You will serve faithfully, you will love, you will do everything that you can, you will bear the marks. And over the course of years and maybe even decades, you won't see change. And it gets hard. Like the Israelites following Moses in the wilderness, they will complain and they will question. Or like Ahab and and Jezebel to Elijah, sometimes the people that you seek to love and to minister to, they'll respond with hatred and they'll attack you and your reputation will be dragged through the mud. Beloved, to be a follower of God in this world means that you will, at times, follow God's call on your life to do incredibly difficult things. I see several kids here. That means there are parents, and that means God is calling you to do something incredibly hard. Living with other people, serving other people, loving other people is incredibly hard. And perhaps you'll be tempted to think, if I follow God's call to do incredibly difficult things, to endure much hardship, I should at least get a little bit of glory. I should at least get a little bit of recognition. At the very least, I ought to get to see this thing to the end. I ought to be able to see the outcome of what God has planned through all this difficulty. Because we know that God is good, we know that he has a good plan, and we think, if I just endure long enough with patient obedience, then I'll get to see the good outcome of this hardship. And maybe as a parent dealing with difficult issues with your kids or or dealing with difficulty in your marriage or dealing with hardship with other members of your church, whatever that is, we are tempted to think, if I just push through this current difficult time, then God will grant me peace and thriving. And maybe he will. Praise God when that happens. But consider Moses. Moses here for 40 years led God's people through the wilderness who were often ungrateful, often calling for a return to Egypt, complaining about his leadership through the desert, waiting to enter the promised land. And when it was time to go in, when they finally got there, when it was time to see that long fought for destination, what happened? God removed Moses. God said, Moses, you're not gonna see the promised land and he died in the wilderness. All that work, all that sacrifice, all that putting up with complaining people, and he didn't even get to go into the promised land at the end. He never saw it. Or consider Elijah, 
fighting, struggling against the most powerful people in the land, longing to see revival in Israel. And in the end, God removes Elijah. Elijah's taken away, never to see the revival that he longed for. Yes, at the end of the story, Ahab is judged, revival came, but it didn't happen through Elijah. He didn't live to see it. It is God's right as our Lord to use us how he sees fit. And we are owed nothing. He calls us to follow him and we follow. We endure, we suffer, we see small victories along the way. But oftentimes God will call us to a long path of hard obedience and we may never see the glory and the purpose of that long path in this life. We are called to hard things. Think about some of the, just the, the simple things that Jesus calls us to. He calls us to love one another. Have you ever tried loving somebody? It's really hard. People are difficult. We're called as a church to be united to one another, to live in peace and joy with one another. That's hard. We're called to love our enemies, to take on the servant nature of Christ, to, to humble ourselves for the good of others. That's really hard. We're called to be exiles and strangers in this world. That's really hard. We all have specific things that God calls us to individually and it may be different for everybody, but everyone who follows Christ is called to be faithful in hard obedience. And here's the question I want you to wrestle with that I want you to consider and I want you to pray about. Will we be content obeying God even if we don't see the reward? God calls us to endure long obedience with long hardship, and he often doesn't allow us to see the longed-for outcome. So will we get discouraged? Will we lose heart? Will we give up? Or will we press on? And if so, how? Perhaps you feel this in some way. You're discouraged because you've sought to honor God. You, you want to follow his leading in your life, but you're not seeing the outcome that you so desperately hope for. And you're wondering, how can I press on? Now, what does all this have to do with the transfiguration of Jesus? Well, we see Moses and Elijah who endured great suffering, and then they're removed without ever seeing their reward. Until now, here on this mountain, finally Moses and Elijah have the reward. They are standing before the very glory of God in the face of Christ, the one whom scripture says is the image of the invisible God. All right, remember, what did Moses want? What was his ultimate longing? What was his one request up on the mountain when God was giving him the Ten Commandments? What did he ask for? Lord, let me see your glory. And God's answer was, okay, but not really. All right, what happened? God puts him in the cleft that is a little cave, a shallow cave in the mountain. And all Moses saw was a reflection off the rock of the backside of God's glory. But now here, Moses is granted that vision that he had longed for 1,500 years previously. Here, he beheld in the transfigured face of Christ, the fullness, not just a glimpse, not just a reflection, not just a tiny little snippet, but the fullness of the radiance of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And in that moment, you know that the 40 years of wilderness wandering, the 40 years of hardship and endurance was worth it. Though he never saw the promised land, he has now been given the ability to see something far greater, the full radiance of the glory of God. He never entered the promised land, but now he stands before the promised one. He got his reward in Christ. Or think about Elijah. 
What was it that Elijah really wanted? If you go back to the story, 1 Kings 18, he has that great showdown with the priest of Baal where he calls down fire from heaven that consumed the sacrifice, killed all the priests. He longed for revival, but even in that spectacle, no revival came. Elijah longed to see God display his glory throughout the whole land, but God didn't. And so Elijah, 1 Kings 19, goes into this deep depression and he runs off and hides in the mountains. And there God comes to him, not in the spectacle, not in the splendor, but in the still small voice. God comes and appears to Elijah, but it says Elijah had to hide his face in his cloak. Standing before the manifest presence of the glory of God, he had to hide his face. And like Moses, he longed to see God's glory, but he's only able to see it with his face veiled, covered. And now 850 years later, here on this mountain, He beholds what the cloak around his face had hidden back on that mountain. He looks into the face of Jesus and he sees the glory of God, the glory of the only begotten Savior of the world, who Hebrews 1 says is the brightness of God's glory, the express image of his person. And so, beloved, I want you to see the tender grace of God to his servants that's displayed here. God, in his grace, sent Moses and Elijah there, not just as symbols. Yes, it's that, but it's not just that. God, in his grace and his kindness, sends Moses and Elijah there for Moses and Elijah's sake. Isn't God so kind that even even as they are in heaven, God is pouring out kind blessings upon his servants? It's as if God is saying here, this Moses, this Jesus is the true promised land. Christ is your home. This is what the law and all those meticulous details of the tabernacle, this is what it's all about. Or this Elijah, this Jesus is the true spectacle you were looking for. This is how I will redeem my people. This is how my glory will be spread, not just in Israel, but in all the world. This is the one who will topple all the wicked kings and all the patterns of injustice. This is the one who will end all hurt. This is the one who will wipe away every tear. This one, Jesus, is what it's all been about. And this, Moses and Elijah, is why you had to wait. And this, brothers and sisters, it's for the full exaltation of the glory of Christ that we often need to wait as well. Elijah wanted the kingdom of Israel to return to God. But here God is showing Elijah that ultimately the problem with his desires weren't that they were too big. Elijah's desires were far too small. Because in Christ, not just Israel, but men and women from every tribe, tongue, language, and culture will bow down before the throne of the exalted Christ, proclaiming him as Lord and beholding the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And in that moment, you know it all made sense. Christ is the promised land. He is the one to whom all of creation, not just Israel, will bow. The Lord is showing us that in the light of the glory of the face of Christ, all of our deepest longings are met. Our greatest treasure is found. All of our hardest discouragements are redeemed. So like Moses and Elijah, and like the disciples, God calls us to a long road of obedience. And along that road, we will be called to endure a lot of hardship. And perhaps the Lord will see fit to give us glimpses of glory along the way. But we may die never seeing the outcome that we so desperately desire. But beloved, don't lose heart. Don't give up. 
Because like them, like Moses and Elijah, we are promised a vision far greater than we can even begin to hope for. There's one more small thing I want to see here, and, and that is these disciples. You see, not just Moses and Elijah are there, but it tells us that, that Peter and John and James were there as well, verse 28. Now, Peter and James would go on to die for the Lord without seeing Christ and all that unveiled glory again in this world. But John, John got one more look. And so if we keep following the cloud and the light, we get to the book of Revelation. And late in his life, this, this disciple John is exiled on the island of Patmos where he's given a vision. And in that vision, he sees the resurrected Lord in all his glory again. It says in Revelation 1, as he looks at Christ, it says that his face was shining like the sun. What does that sound like? The exact same thing that's happening here. His face shining like the sun. Revelation 21, John is given a vision of the new heavens and the new earth. That is the full consummation of everything that Christ has won in his death and resurrection. And it says of the new heavens and new earth, there is no need of sun or moon or lamp for the glory of the lamb is the light and there is no night. Do you see what's happening there? That, that, that manifest glory of Christ is so bright that it makes the sun completely irrelevant. You don't need a flashlight in the middle of the day because the sun is far brighter. You don't need the sun in the new heavens and new earth because the Son of God is far brighter. The glory of the Lord. And it says in Revelation 22, 4, they, that is all the redeemed believers in Christ, will see his face. The ultimate blessing, that's what it's all about. Beloved, God may call you to do very hard things in your life, and you may follow him, and he will use you as he see fits, and he may remove you from the equation, and you may never see the outcome that you want. Most outcomes we want are never guaranteed. But those who trust in God have the absolute guarantee of this hope. You will see his face in the fullness of his radiant glory. His face will shine upon you and you will see him in all his glory. And in that moment, all will be made right. All will make sense. And by God's grace, he will be with his people never to depart again. And in that moment, beloved, we will know that it was worth it. All the pain, all the heartache, all the struggle, all the waiting and wanting, we will know that all of it was worth it as we behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. Brothers and sisters, God may ask you, let me rephrase that, God will ask you to do very hard things oftentimes with little immediate reward. And you may be tempted to get discouraged, but don't lose heart. Our hope is this, that one day we will stand together with all the saints before the radiance of the glory of God in the face of Christ, and on that day, it will all be worth it. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you would help us through your word and by your spirit to treasure the glory of Jesus, that, that guaranteed hope that we have through the gospel, that we will be with you and that you will be with us and that we will see your face, that that promise would help us to carry through and to endure 
and that we would be faithful in the obedience that you call us to for the sake of Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.